As we continue our study of Saul and Peter, the servants of God, last week was an awesome time in, in study as we saw in the book of Acts when Saul was converted on the road to Damascus. If you guys remember, he, uh, Saul was on his journey. He was upset and angry at the Christians. And he wanted to have them all brought before the religious leaders, the high priests, so that they could be judged, so that they can, some of them be stoned and murdered. And this is how angry this leader Saul was. He was so angry and so intense that something so great had to stop him. And that great, being God himself. God himself had to interrupt Saul's plans. He had to interrupt Saul's desires, what he wanted to do in order for Saul to have this 180 degree turnaround, this repentance where he was going in one direction and the Lord halted him. He stopped everything going on in his life and made him realize the truth that the man whom he persecuted so harshly, Jesus Christ, was actually the Messiah, the God, the one true living God. Remember Jesus told Saul on the road, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Isn't it hard for you to kick against the goads? Because Saul had at this point built up in his heart a callous towards the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit was saying to him. He was hard-hearted. So God had to blind him. He blinded Saul there on the road. He fell to his knees and said, Who are you, Lord? He said, It is me, Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And then he said, What do you want me to do? Those are the perfect words for anyone who desires to be under the Lord. You see, you can't call him Lord and say no to him when he asks you to do something. Then if you say no to him, then he's not really your Lord. Because if he is your Lord, that by definition means that he is in command of what you're to do. So Saul goes, and you guys remember then Ananias, also visited by the Lord, was sent to Saul so that he could pray for him, heal him of his blindness. And Ananias, though he knew the craziness and the harshness of Saul, went to go pray over him. And it said something like scales fall out of Saul's eyes. And from then, Saul began to preach the Christ. And this is where we pick up. We pick up right here in Acts chapter 9, verse 20. We're after Saul's conversion. It says in Acts chapter 9, verse 20, Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Now this is interesting for a Jewish person to preach, that Christ is the Son of God. Why is that? 
See, the Jewish religion is a monotheistic religion, meaning they believe in the one true living God. To this day, they, they still pray the, what's called the Shema. They say, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One God. It's a monotheistic religion. So for a Jew, as zealous as Saul, to begin to preach Christ being the Son of God in the synagogues means that Saul had to experience something so powerful that he was able to adopt this additional doctrine of the Trinity, the triune God. You see, Saul was so impacted by Christ that he left behind his traditions of religion and allowed God to send Saul immediately to go preach Christ. It says in verse 21, Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? So you see those around Saul realized and knew, like, wait, this is the guy who was trying to kill Christians. They knew who Saul was and what his mission was. You know, sometimes people in our lives, they're not going to believe the transformation that God has done. They're going to look at us as, oh, you know, well, it's just a phase that you're going through. You're going to, you know, snap back into your old ways. This is just a phase. But when a believer is truly converted and growing in the Lord, many times that believer, they realize that there's no way for them to go back. Remember Peter said to Jesus when all of the disciples, many of the disciples and followers of Christ began to leave because Jesus started to say, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people got freaked out by that. They're like, eat his flesh and drink his blood. What do you mean? So they got scared and began to leave. And then Jesus looked to his disciples and Peter being there, he said, and you guys too, are you, will you also leave me? And Peter said, Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? And this is, is our heart. This is the believer's heart, a true believer's heart, to realize that there is nothing else better than a life with Christ. And because of that, it's not just a phase. And sometimes people are going to find it hard to believe that you're changed. And you have to be patient with them. You have to allow the Lord to defend you. And not try to defend yourself. But let God do the work. It says in verse 22, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. You see, Saul was under this little bit of persecution now as they were saying, wait, who's this guy? This is the guy who was trying to kill Christians. But what, what had happened to Saul? He increased in strength. And he confounded the Jews. And I like that word, confounded but I wasn't quite sure what it meant. I was like, I like that word, confounded. 
So I looked it up. Confounded means to become perplexed or bewildered, confused. And the reason why the Jews were perplexed and confused and bewildered was because what Paul, what Saul, not yet Paul, but going to be Paul soon, what Saul was telling them was wisdom that they couldn't argue against. Wisdom from God. And they began to see, wow, what he, this man is saying is truth. It's making sense. And it made them so scared to let go of their religious tradition and what they were raised in, which was a works-based relationship with God. And now that Saul is preaching Christ and saying, look, through Jesus, we have a direct relationship with the Father. This is tearing apart their ideas of, of working towards God. And so they were bewildered and confounded. And I love what he is proving to them, though, there in Damascus. He's proving to them that Jesus is the Christ. Now, the word Christ, it means the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, the Savior. So he's proving that Jesus is this Messiah, the Mashiach. Now, how did he do that? He used the word of God. He must have. You know, in the Old Testament, there's over 300 prophecies concerning the Messiah that have been fulfilled by Jesus. As you look through all of the Old Testament and you could just mark in your Bible and underline and highlight those prophecies. In my Bible, what I would do many times is I color-coded certain ideas or themes in the Bible. As a good student of the Bible... Make a little key for yourself. Get a, go to Staples and with your mask on. Get the little highlighter thing, all the, the, the highlighter uh, box, whatever, different colors in it. And then write, make a key for yourself. For me, I had uh, green as prophecies. I had orange as anything that God was saying directly. As yellow, I had the promises uh, of God to us. I think I had pink as sin, because pink's the bad color. I'm just kidding. But I had, you know, you just color code all these different ideas and themes so that when you look through your word, you see, oh, wow, like, okay, this is a prophecy. You know it right away. Oh, this is a promise for me. And you could go through that. But if you had the prophecies highlighted in your Bible, you could go through and find some of these in the Old Testament. It was prophesied that Jesus was going to be from the line of Abraham. We read of that in Genesis 12, verse 3. It was also prophesied that Jesus was going to be from the line of Isaac. That was in Genesis 26, verse 4. It was prophesied that Jesus would be from the line of Jacob in Genesis 28, and also that he would be from the line of Judah in Genesis chapter 49. That he would be a son of Jesse in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, and also a son of David in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. See, Jesus fulfilled all of these prophecies. In Zechariah, the prophet's book, he prophesied that Jesus would enter on a donkey's colt in Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9. In Psalm 41, verse 9, we read that Jesus would be betrayed by a friend. In Zechariah 11.12, 12, 
we read that the betrayal would be for 30 pieces of silver. Now remember, these are all Old Testament prophecies written long before Jesus came on the scene. Again, in Zechariah chapter 11, we read that the money used for that 30 pieces of silver would be used to purchase the potter's field, which is fulfilled in Matthew 27. In Daniel 9 and Isaiah 53, we read that the Messiah would die a sacrificial death for us. In Isaiah 53 verse 9, we read that he would die with criminals but his burial would be with the wealthy. And if you remember, he was buried by a rich man who uh, came to them and took the body. In Isaiah 53, verse 10, he would rise from the dead. And also in Psalm 22, 8 and 18, he would say certain words on the cross. He would be mocked and people would gamble for his clothes. Now, I could go on and on over all the prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled, but I think you guys get the idea that this is something that, mathematically speaking, the probability for one man to fulfill all these different prophecies is ridiculous. It's such a small percent chance that this can be fulfilled by one man, all these different prophecies that I just read to you, and there's many more. So Saul here was going from the Old Testament all the way to where they were now and showing the Jews, look, this is who the scriptures were speaking on. You guys remember the the disciples on the road to Emmaus? They were so sad because Jesus had been killed. And then so as they're walking along the road, they don't know Jesus is resurrected yet. They're walking along the road. And Jesus appears to them incognito. He doesn't reveal himself as Jesus to them. He's beginning to walk with them on the road. And he hears what they're talking about. And he's like, well, why are you guys so sad? What, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, haven't you heard? Or like, where have you been? Don't you know about what they did to Jesus? And how this man, this prophet from the Lord was killed, crucified. And then Jesus began to explain to them. He's like, well, wasn't the Messiah supposed to be killed? And they're like, well, what do you mean wasn't the Messiah supposed to be killed? And then it says that Jesus began to talk with them all the way from Genesis to their time and expound on the scriptures to them and show them, reveal to them how the Messiah was to die a sacrificial death for the world. And this had brought so much light into these disciples' lives that they said, look, come stay with us for the night. Come into our inn and we're going to feed you. And he said, all right, I'll, I'll go with you guys. So once they started to break bread there, they still didn't know it was Jesus. And suddenly as they were breaking bed, bread, all of a sudden their eyes were open. And they realized that Jesus was right there with them the whole time. And it was at that moment that, boom, Jesus disappeared. But remember what they said to one another? They said, didn't it burn in our hearts when he expounded the scriptures to us? And that's what the Old Testament 
the New Testament does to us as we read it. It burns in our hearts. We have to speak it forth. We have to proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is our Savior. Continuing in Acts chapter 9, after Saul was preaching, it says in verse 23, Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him in a large basket. You see the religious leaders again, the Jews that hated Christ, and they hated Christ being preached so much that they began to seek to kill Saul. They put the green light on his head, so to speak. Notice at this point, Saul, he doesn't try to stay and fight the Jewish leaders or continue to preach. But at this point in time, Saul retreats. He backs off. You see, sometimes in, in our Christian walks, there's going to be times when the Lord tells us, okay, it's time to run. It's time to retreat. And there's other times when the Lord says, stand still and watch me work. God was guiding Saul. And the disciples at this point, we could see that their love for him had grown, that their, their trust for him had grown so much so that they didn't want him to be taken by the Jewish leaders. So they put him in a basket, a large basket, and let him down through a wall. Some 007 stuff right there. It says in verse 26, And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. You see, some of the disciples there in Jerusalem were still skeptical of this man who used to be a terrorist to the Christians. Remember Ananias, he was also afraid. But I, last week, when we read of Ananias' response, when God called him to go to Saul, we do recognize that Ananias never said no. He just kind of laid out, well, God, Saul's a terrorist to the Christians. And he's like, you know that, right? And God's like, yes, I do. And he's like, all right, we're going to go ahead. I'm going to go to Saul and pray for him. But here again, the disciples, they're scared. Sometimes in our life, we allow fear to keep us from what God is trying to do through us, through other people. We need to make sure that our discernment is from the Lord, not from this world. In verse 27, it says, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared them, how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. Now this is what I love about Barnabas is Barnabas was always seen as this loving companion, someone to comfort his disciples and brothers. See, Saul is brought by Barnabas to the other disciples. So at this point, somehow Barnabas had enough faith that God had changed Saul. I'm always reminded to be a Barnabas in someone's life. Someone, uh, you can go alongside of them and encourage them in the Lord. We need to be a Barnabas to people, to bring other people to believers. 
so that other non-believers can even see, oh, okay, this is what true love from Christ is amongst a body of believers. I'm also encouraged that we need a Paul in our life, someone who we can look up to and, and glean from, someone who can disciple us. And that also we need a Timothy in our lives. And Timothy, who wrote a few books of the New Testament, a few chapters in it, was a disciple of Paul. And we need to be discipling those who are younger than us, those who are younger in the Lord than us. Now, what we do notice in these verses, 27 and 28, is that there was a unity amongst the former religious leader Saul and also Matthew, this tax collector now, as he's going to the disciples in Jerusalem. And Peter was a zealot. When you look at these guys, these 11 dudes, these disciples, they were kind of a motley crew if you looked at their backgrounds. You see, Peter being a zealot was so zealous for uh, the Jews and that they were under persecution from Rome that he would have hated Matthew, the tax collector, who was working for Rome, even though he was Jewish. So if they would have met each other outside in the street at night, I'm sure Peter, knowing that he was kind of okay with the sword, would have might, might have tried to attack him or something. But they would have hated each other. But because Jesus was in their life, these men who came from backgrounds that were completely against each other we're now all unified. Now, you're going to see that as you grow in ministry and in your walk with the Lord, that your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ is dependent upon that very thing. You start to look at your guys' interests, and many times you guys are going to have such weird and different interests that it's a miracle that you guys are able to hang out with one another. When I look at my brothers in the Lord, uh, sometimes I think, man, like we are completely opposite and different. And God made us so different from each other. But what unifies us together is Christ. And that's a beautiful thing. In verse 29, it says, And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Now again, remember the Hellenists. They were the Jews raised in Greek culture. And he's disputing against them. And they were mad, mad so they tried to kill him. And so at this point, again, he goes down to Caesarea and then from there to Tarsus. Now, Saul was from Tarsus originally. So it could be that perhaps at this time he's retiring to go home for safety. And then it says in verse 31, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Again, something we recognize is that 
Saul was used greatly to persecute the church. And the other Jewish leaders were right there helping him. And after this persecution of the church, all the disciples were spread out everywhere because they couldn't stay in one place in Jerusalem. They had to hide. And as they were now spread out in Judea, Galilee, Samaria, these churches began to blossom wherever they would go underground. It looked for a moment here like almost the church was going to have to go underground in California. John MacArthur had to go up on his Sunday morning and say, welcome church members, Grace Community, to the first peaceful protest of our church. And you know what? That's what he had to do to say as a joke kind of. To let people know, hey, like, we're, we're going to follow God. And thank God that he had given him uh, a blessing, favor amongst the judge that ruled in his case that they could still meet. But that's what's happening right now. I mean, right now, like, thank the Lord we're still able to meet. But there's going to come a day when it's not going to be possible when we are going to have to go underground, we are going to have to hide. And many times what we see and we read in the scriptures, it's that during that season of persecution, the church begins to grow because people begin to depend upon the Lord rather than on themselves, rather than on the finances or the building or, or the numbers. We focus on who is in control of the church. You have to remind yourself in the ministries that you're involved in and even the workplaces that God has called you to. Remind yourself that God called you there, that your calling, that his plan for your life is his call and his plan. It's not yours. So if it's God's, if it's God's plan, if it's God's call for your life, why are we worrying so much about it? Why are we worrying so much about the the people he places in our lives when we realize that God loves them so much? And he's working these things out. Even sometimes when we don't see it. And I love that these disciples, they were at peace with one another. They were being edified. They were walking in the fear of the Lord. We need the fear of the Lord in our lives. It keeps us close to him. Wisdom is fearing the Lord. And I love the idea that the Holy Spirit is our comforter. The paraclete is the helper. Sometimes we, we feel like God isn't guiding us. We feel like God has forgotten about us. But when we read who the Holy Spirit is and his attributes, the Holy Spirit is that helper to help guide us. God wants his will to be done in our lives more than we want his will to be done in our lives. 
So how, we, we should be trusting that the Holy Spirit is guiding us. Fleeing from sin. Submitting to God, resisting the devil, so that, so that the devil will flee. And continue to walk in the fear of the Lord. Look at verse 32. It says, Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed and he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lida and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Now this miracle right here, it's a testimony of who Jesus is still. That he's still alive, still working in people's lives. And notice who Paul claimed to do the healing. Paul didn't say that he was, I'm sorry, Peter didn't say that he was doing the healing. But Peter claimed that Jesus was doing the healing. Now, up until studying this portion of scripture, I had a problem with people saying, I command the sickness to come out of someone. I did. And so I I had to do some research to see, well, did people pray this way in the Bible? And sure enough, I found a verse. In Acts chapter 16, verse 18, later on we're going to read this. It says, when it, there was a woman who had a, a demon in her, and she was annoying Paul. In Acts chapter 16, verse 18, it said, Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. And the Lord spoke to me, don't get so hung up on the, the formality But as we read, Paul was proclaiming that in the name of Jesus, the Spirit was coming out. The Spirit came out. But I do recognize too, and I'm still very careful to say, Lord, make this demon come out. (laughs) I pray. Because I, I realize and recognize that the power is not in us, in humans. The power is in Christ. The power is in Jesus. God himself. Now in verse 36, it says, At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. There's a name for your daughter. Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Okay, so now there are believers who believe that when people become sick, that it's a direct relation to a lack of faith in their life. But this is not the case for Dorcas at all. It says that she was a woman full of good works and charitable deeds. And now in verse 38, and since Lida was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there. They sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay 
in coming to them. You see, they couldn't have a delay because now that Dorcas was dead, she would have had a, a burial and a, and a funeral that same day. So the disciples had to act quick to get to her so that they could pray for her. Now, we do recognize even if she would have been put in a tomb, that Lazarus also was put in a tomb and was there for a few days before Jesus came to him and called him out of the, the tombs. It says in verse 39, Then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the, window, the widows stood by him, weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. So there's this big ceremony. They loved this woman, Dorcas. They were showing Peter all the things that she would knit. All, and they, they loved this woman. And in this burial, in this ceremony, they would have this, this washing ceremony of washing a dead body and then perfuming this body, of putting uh, these scents on it so that they can parade the body before they took it to be buried in a tomb. There was a big ceremony. They would hire, they would actually hire women wearing all black to come to the funerals. And these women were hired just to cry and wail loudly. And this was showing honor that look, look how great this person was in their past life. Now in verse 40, it says, but Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, sat, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Peter is following in the footsteps of Christ. Remember, Jesus did the same thing. When all these people were weeping over the daughter of Jairus, remember Jairus, he was uh, a, uh, a well-known man, one of the, the city leaders. And he came to Jesus saying, Jesus, my, my daughter is sick. And as they were walking on the road, someone came to Jairus and said, your daughter has passed away. So Jesus and Jairus went to the place where the, body was of this little girl and there was all these women weeping and wailing and Jesus told the wailers to go out to those who were weeping to leave the room and Jesus did the same thing you see sometimes you need to get the lack of faith out of the room so that the, the, the movement of the spirit could be full there could be no distractions. And so Peter is following that same example. He removes those who only saw death. And Peter then began to pray. And then the miracle. That is, he told her, Tabitha, arise. And she got up. That what was once dead is now made alive. And that's what Jesus does in our life. It says in verse 42, and it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed on the Lord. 
So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. See, this is what Christ is doing. He's doing works through his disciples. Whom he told them, he's like, look, the works that you guys are going to do are going to be greater than what I have done, what you've seen me do. And it's like, whoa, how could you say that, Jesus? What do you mean? I've seen you rise Lazarus from the dead. And now he's sending his disciples out and they're raising people from the dead. They're calling demons out. And so many of it is happening. And it's all through the power of Christ. He just uses us as instruments. We're just these meat bags that walk around. But the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit fills us, there's nothing too hard for God. And I love at the end in verse 43, it says, so it was that he stayed with many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. The reason why this is unique to me is because Peter, this man who was Jewish, with Jewish culture, would never go into a tanner's house. Now, a tanner was somebody who dealt with dead animal bodies. So, Peter being a Jew would not go with someone who would be ceremonially unclean. But it says that Peter stayed with Simon the Tanner for many days. So this is now the beginning of what we're about to witness later on in the book of Acts of the Holy Spirit beginning his work with the Gentiles. First, the Holy Spirit went to the Jews and try to call his children to himself. But when the Jews, some of them, many of them rejected Christ, then the Holy Spirit then began to focus on the Gentiles, the non-Jews, one of those being Simon and Tanner. So we see God's work is not done. The book of Acts is the only book in the Bible that it's still going on to this day. Where the acts of God's servants are still being done now and we're seeing this happen today so we pray for our believers in the lord we pray for the future the future generations of little ones that are going to be growing up to to follow in the footsteps of christ god's not done with us He's not done, and we're not done. You know, with everything that's going on, sometimes we could look at this season as just getting in the way of our plans. Like, oh, COVID. Ah, oh, COVID. It's getting in the way of what we really should be doing right now. It's getting in the way of our plans. But God wants us here. This is exactly where we need to be. And God, when he desires, is going to prepare us to move forward in other areas. But we should be seeking to find out what God wants us to do in this season. Who knows? I mean, this might season might end very soon. And when you look back, are you going to be able to say, okay, God, I, I did what you wanted me to do during this season. So this week... 
when you use the name of Jesus in conversation with someone. And I mean it, like, write it down. Do something that's going to make you to remember, okay, this week I'm going to use the name of Jesus in conversation with someone. I'm going to bring it up in one way, shape, or form. And there's power in the name of Jesus. Be filled with his spirit that you may enjoy his blessing in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace and mercy. I pray and I ask, Lord, that you would go before us as we continue to be filled with your spirit. As we continue to seek, Lord, what you desire for us. Lord God, I pray for those who are hurting, Father, those who are weak, Lord, that you would strengthen them. I pray for those going through a season, Father, of change, a season of doubt. I pray that your Holy Spirit would encourage them. Would your Holy Spirit just do that work, Father, that breakthrough prayer. Father, of deliverance from sin, of doors opening, Father, of your love, Lord, being first in their life. I pray for that rededication, Lord God, for that consistency to grow. We love you, Father. We praise you. We thank you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand. this week. I encourage you guys to continue to uh, trust the Lord. Uh, continue to reach out to us. We want to hear from you guys. We love you guys. We've got to get, be getting together right now uh, in spirit and in truth. We need to worship the Lord. So let's worship God. Your love, O oh Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness stretches to the sky. Your righteousness it's like the mighty mountains, yeah. Your justice flows like the ocean's tide. And I will lift my voice to worship you, my I will find my strength in the shadow of your wings. 
your love, O oh Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness stretches to the sky. Be blessed this week. In Jesus' name.